0: Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. In this evening's Bible study, we paused at a strategic moment in 1 Samuel to talk about textual criticism. If you have never before considered the variety of manuscripts in which the Bible comes down to us and the important questions that raises, then you may find what follows a bit bewildering, and I'm deeply aware that I tried to say too much at once. Even so, I think it's important to hear about these things from someone who loves Jesus and believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. So, if you choose to listen beyond the review of 1 Samuel 8 and 9, and you have questions, please feel free to reach out through our church website, faithchurchclinton.org. Next week, we will be back to our regularly scheduled study as we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Well, welcome back. We've been working our way through 1 Samuel. Uh, Last week, we looked at 1 Samuel 8 and 9, uh, and what was the looming issue in 1 Samuel 8? What, what did they ask for? They asked for a king, right? In 1 Samuel 9, these interesting things happen, right? Uh, we talked about that a little bit. We, we meet this eligible young bachelor from a well-to-do family who can't find his donkeys for anything. Uh, and we talked a little bit about how the narrator builds expectation around this young man. Uh, he gets a genealogy. We get an idea of his position in society, his social standing. But we've got red flags too, including where he's from, right? He's from Benjamin and he's not from anywhere in Benjamin. I think we find out a little bit later. He's from Gibeah, which is where things started there at the end of the book of Judges. Nevertheless, he's out looking for his father's donkeys. Uh, He doesn't seem to be very resourceful, but he's gathered around himself some resourceful people. So the young man with him says, hey, let's go see the seer. And that's where things suddenly get really, really interesting, right? They're walking toward this town, and this eligible young bachelor encounters a whole flock of eligible young maidens coming out of the town to draw water, and they encounter one another at a well. Right. And if we're paying attention as we read Genesis, as we read Exodus, as we read John 4, that means there's a wedding coming, right? Like we're expecting what follows, especially with all of the buildup from chapter 8 that builds our expectations and the and the clues so far in the text here. Wow, not only is this our guy, but we're gonna start this off with a royal wedding, right? And that's immediately undercut as they ask for and then follow directions. And nothing happens with these young ladies at the well. Right? Saul continues into town. He encounters Samuel. They have a conversation. They go up. There's this special dinner where a special portion has been set aside in readiness for him when he gets there because he's been expected. And he, the Lord, told Samuel that he was going to meet him the next day, and he wanted him to anoint him prince over my people Israel. And so things follow, and then the chapter wraps up, and people go on their way from there after he's anointed. Um, last week when we talked about it, there were a couple of things I mentioned for you to pay attention to. Does anybody remember what those were? Because I didn't. I didn't write them down. Whales? No, not whales and women. Sorry. Prince. I'm sorry, ask. A, ask, the word for ask, yes, the word for ask, the word for king, and the word for prince. Uh, one thing we saw last week is Israel's asking for a king in chapter 8. The verb for that is sha'al, and then we meet Saul in the next chapter. His name is sha'ul, right? Which sounds like you asked for it, or the thing asked for. So that's a part of the way the text builds expectation as well. So that's at play in the chapter. We also see the word prince all over chapter 9. What do we not see? We don't see the word for king. The word for king and the word for reign, uh, which are built off of the same root, are very carefully avoided throughout the whole of chapter 9 until we come to the very end, and Saul's uncle is pressing him for information about what Samuel told him. And the narrator says, but about the matter of the kingdom, he said nothing. Well, neither has the narrator or anyone else for the whole chapter right up until that point. So we're left at the end of chapter 9 with frustrated expectations and a certain level of uncertainty about who exactly Saul is. And what exactly is going to happen moving forward from here? The people asked for a king. The Lord anointed a prince. Where do we go from there? Now, as a bit of review from last week, um, there's this curious thing that happens at the end of chapter 9 that you may have noticed as we were reading. Uh, In verse 25, My translation says, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Now, is that what your translation says? Several of you will be reading a translation that says, um, uh, and he and Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul. As we get into chapter 10, whether that's later this evening or next week, we'll notice again, um, some of us will be reading a translation where I think it's verse 1 is about twice as long as, as what other people are reading. And this has come up earlier here and there as a word is treated differently, uh, as the Lord's name is mentioned in the text in some translations and not others, um, and, and other sorts of details like that. And so I I mentioned last week that that we need to talk about textual criticism, uh, about what's going on uh, with our different translations and and the different ways they're going. So so let's talk about that for a little bit. I need to be very careful with that initial consonant. I was talking to somebody the other day. They got really excited and then really disappointed. Talking about textual criticism, making judgments about the text of Scripture. So let's pause, and we'll we'll come back to 1 Samuel. We'll talk about some examples from 1 Samuel. Let's talk about what's going on. So I have a paper. I'm not going to read the paper, but I'm going to use the outline of the paper to guide our discussion. I'll give you the outline on the board so that you have it, because I want you to be able to ask questions, and I want us to be able to discuss it. But let's, let's talk through what, what's going on, Here, So we'll talk about some background and terms to know. And if I use a term and I didn't tell you what it is, please stop and ask me. Because I'm making adjustments to this as we go. I'm going to try and make this available to you all later after I've had a chance to edit it. It was printed about an hour ago. So... Differences in English only. Differences in original languages. We'll talk about a few of those. We'll talk about textual criticism, what it is, and what textual critics do. And then the last section I've just called An Embarrassment of Riches. And it's just kind of, okay, where do we go from there? What do we make of of all of that? So, all right. Hold on. My Bible says something different, right? We've heard comments like that. Um, in most Bible studies we've been a part of, we've heard it a few times on Tuesday nights so far this term, um, and we've left. Sometimes even when we're sitting there by ourselves, we're left scratching our head because of this enigmatic note uh, in the Bible, either in the margin or in a footnote. It says some manuscripts say, and it it says something else than what it's printed. So, what's up? Right. How do we make our way through translational differences, marginal notes, invariant readings? And how do we talk about these things in a way that encourages rather than undermines, uh, normal people reading the Bible? Right. Because we can talk about it in a way and that very quickly makes it sound really complicated. Like you've got to be an expert to know what's going on. I do want to talk about some of the nitty gritty details, but first, Remember, the same God who inspired the text has preserved it for us. Not always in the way that we would like, but he has preserved it for us so that we are not without hope in dealing with even complex and difficult issues of the transmission of the Bible. In fact, the very challenge of textual criticism, I would say, is a welcome reminder to approach Scripture with diligent, attention, and to devote ourselves to study with what the Westminster Confession calls the due use of the ordinary means, that we might grow in grace and understanding. So first, some background, uh, some terms that you'll want to know for this kind of discussion. Um, first, just a reminder, the Bible is a translated text. Um, that's such an obvious thing to say that sometimes we don't say it. And some of the confusion that we have or some of the things that come up are, are just because the Bible is a translated text, right? It was delivered to the people of God of old in the language of their daily life. We don't speak the same language that the people of God spoke 3,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was, was wrapping up, right? Right. The Old Testament's mostly in Hebrew. There are some portions of it in Aramaic, and the New Testament was completely written in Greek. Um, and right, that means in addition to centuries that have passed since it was written, most of us are encountering the Bible already at one remove from the original wording, right? We can't read it in Hebrew and Greek, then we're, we're already at one remove as we're reading it in English or in French or in German or or some other language, right? There are also some, some, some vocabulary that has to do with this topic that's helpful to know, right? Until the time of the printing press, all books, all books, including the Bible, were copied by hand. And so we continue to refer to copies of Scripture or copies of portions of Scripture as manuscripts, meaning something handwritten. And the people who did that copying are often called scribes or copyists. And there's usually not a distinction intended by that difference of terms, right? So the the copies themselves are called manuscripts. The people doing the copying are called scribes or copyists. Um, a variant reading, or sometimes just a variant, is a way of referring to places in the text where one manuscript differs from another, right? Maybe this one has a singular, this one has a plural. And we'll we'll talk about specific kinds of variants. And then it's also good to know that although the Old Testament was first written in Hebrew and Aramaic, already before the New Testament, the whole Old Testament was translated into Greek. And that group of books is usually called the Septuagint. Sometimes it's abbreviated LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70, because uh, legend has it that 70 elders got together and translated the books of Moses as the beginning of that process of translation. Uh, there was also a Latin translation of the whole Bible worked on by St. Jerome. as called the Vulgate, because Latin was the common or vulgar language of the time. Uh, And then also, you all may know that we found a huge cache of scrolls, mostly in Hebrew, some in Greek, near the Dead Sea. We discovered them in the 1940s, started studying and translating and publishing them in the 1960s. Those are called the Dead Sea Scrolls because we get really, really creative with names. Uh, In fact, specific ones are like the Cave 11 Psalm Scroll. Uh, But those often get abbreviated DSS for Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, let's talk about differences in English only. Sometimes we're sitting down, you've got one translation, I've got another, we're reading it, something pops up, but the, the only difference that's going on is a difference in the English text. Because right? um, a lot of differences between versions don't reflect differences in the original language. They come down instead to changes in the English language, differing understandings, of the underlying text, or even different basic approaches to the task of translation. In other words, these differences don't relate to the transmission of the text of the Bible, but they relate instead to our present-day understanding of it and our approach to putting it into English. So, uh, first then, differences in English style and translation philosophy. One of the best things, I was talking with one of you about this a couple weeks ago. One of the best things that you can do to know your Bible better is actually to sit down and read the preface all the way through. You guys think I'm nuts? But but in the preface, the editors and the translators will tell you what they're doing and how they're doing it, what their their rules of thumb are and what their what their understanding of their task is. An easy way to see this is with ancient measurements, right? Units of measure and their modern equivalents. Some modern English Bibles will continue to use ancient measurements that we see in the, in the original languages. Baths, ephas, cubits and spans, watches of the night, right? Other modern English translations will provide modern equivalents either in the margin and I hate that when they tell you that, you know, this was, um, oh, 1,100 shekels. And the margin tells you a shekel was two-fifths of an ounce. Like, can't you do the math for me? That would be really helpful if you would do the math instead of making me either do it in my head or pull out my phone every time I see that, right? Um, but there are some that will actually go the distance of converting... Uh, that ancient measurement into a present day equivalent, like miles or kilometers. Uh, and they'll actually put that in the body of the translation. So, the New Living Translation, for instance, is one that does that. Um, the handling of ancient measurements is a little window into a much larger conversation. What's the aim of a translation as a translation? Is it best? to stick as close as possible to the wording of the text that you're translating from. This may preserve word plays, um, echoes of other passages, but it often does so at the expense of clarity, right? You get that this is echoing that over there, but you're still left scratching your head. Okay, what what does it mean, right? Um, Is it best instead? to translate the sense of what the text is saying into clear, lucid English. This might be of tremendous benefit to the average reader, uh, but it also runs the risk of obscuring things, like the repetition of key words that may be part of what an author is doing. Uh, And it it often puts the translator in a position of having to make an interpretive decision. Right, They've got to resolve an ambiguity for the sake of, of readability, right? Um, we could talk back and forth all day about which of those approaches is better. And it's not just those two, and most translations end up with a mix of both of those things. But the fact is, we have a great variety of English translations at our disposal. And probably around the table, we have at least five represented. Um, And each of these translations is going to go about their task in a particular way. And in the preface, they're going to tell you, this is what we're doing. This is why we do it. And that will help make sense of some of the decisions that they make. So uh, on this note, we also need to remember that the English language is constantly changing. Constantly changing, right? Try talking to your grandkids. Uh, my great-grandfather had a sense of this. And I remember my, my grandmother would talk about when she was a teenager. He tried really, really hard to keep up with the latest slang the kids were using. It didn't work, right? He finally caught on to the phrase, it's cooking. But by the time he did that, my grandmother and her group of friends had moved on to cooking with gas. Right, He was always just one set of slang behind. So how relieved he might have been to see three or four generations later how long this phrase cool has hung on. Right, It was old when I was a kid, and my kids still use it. Sometimes the differences in one translation or another, um, Right, this kind of difference is most evident when we go back and forth between the King James and other translations. But it will also show up if we go back and forth between translations that intentionally try and, and hold on to some of the wording or the syntax of the King James, uh, like the ESV, like the New King James, and others over against something like the NIV. Right? Sometimes what appears to us to be a difference is just English has changed, and one translation has done more work to reflect that. Than another has. So there's also differences in understanding, right? Those are differences in style and in translation philosophy, but sometimes a difference that shows up in English is not a difference in the original language, but it's a difference in how the translators understand the original language. So this may happen because of our growing understanding of Greek and Hebrew, because we continue to learn more about the languages that the Bible is written in. Um, Sometimes it's because of difficulty in interpreting a word that doesn't occur very often. Uh, Or an idiom that's a little weird, and we're trying to work out exactly what it means. Some idioms are are pretty clear, right? In Judges, when Ehud is, uh, he's just murdered Eglon, and, and he's escaped, and the people are afraid to go in and check on Eglon, because it's that time of day, right? The phrase that Hebrew uses is they thought he was covering his feet. I think mean, most of us, if we read the chapter, we can understand pretty well what covering his feet is intended to mean. Although most of our English translations will say they think he's relieving himself. So Sometimes, though, it's because a word has multiple senses, and translators disagree about the sense it bears in a given passage. So a good example of this uh, occurs in John 1, verse 5. So the King James has at that verse, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. On the other hand, the New Revised Standard has the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So there's some difference in style with modern phrasing, but the crux is the verb at the end comprehend or overcome. And if we start looking at other English translations more widely, we'll see most translations fall into one camp or the other. They'll side with comprehend or they'll side with overcome. Although the, the New Living Translation uh, actually goes, branches out on its own a little bit and uses the word extinguish. Some of those translations will um, have a footnote indicating the other, but, but usually they line up on one team or the other. And what's going on there in John 1.5 is, is John's actually using a wordplay. The verb in question, is is a verb that means gaining control or domination of a person. Or it can also mean getting a hold of a piece of information or coming to understand something. And John intends that word in its full range of meaning, encompassing both of those things. And that's made most clear by the way John presents Jesus' interaction with the scribes and Pharisees. They struggle to understand, and they try to gain power over him all throughout his gospel. We see that especially in uh, Nicodemus as one of the Pharisees coming to him by night, right? It's metaphorically in the dark, still in the dark when he leaves that conversation. So, some translations will highlight one meaning over the other, uh, and some will try and signal that wordplay with a marginal note. They're not reading a different Greek text. It's not that one manuscript has this verb, one manuscript has that, and they're, they're following different manuscripts. They're looking at the same reading, and they're translating it different ways. So, Those are differences that occur that are, that are only there in English, right? But sometimes there are different readings in the original language. We look at Greek manuscripts over against other Greek manuscripts or Hebrew manuscripts over against others, right? These differences are, there's lots of different kinds. They range from spelling variations of common words all the way up to personal names. Sometimes we have entire sections appearing in a different order or showing up in a different location, or even missing altogether in some manuscripts, uh, like John seven fifty three to eight eleven, The Adulterous Woman. We'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. These differences emerge because of the frequent copying of passages of Scripture, the production of Bibles by hand, and the effects of wide dissemination and early translation of the Bible into other ancient languages. This process of producing copies of Scripture and passing them on to future generations is often called transmission, right? It's the the transmitting of the text, the sending it across from one generation to the next. It's often, right, this process of transmission is often, but I think a little disingenuously, compared to a millennia-long game of written telephone, with the result that there are There are so many differences that we wonder if we can ever trust anything in the Bible. I think that people will put that out there. If the person suggesting that knows what they're talking about, I think they're being fundamentally dishonest and they're being misleading on purpose. Uh, We'll talk about why I think that. Uh, But if we examine the evidence, I think instead of this dizzying array of differences that we can never, ever make sense of, Instead, what we see is a careful process of faithfully and lovingly copying out a revered text that is treasured by the people who are reading it and using it and writing it down for the next generation. In fact, although many variant readings do develop, I think the more striking fact is the overwhelming agreement between different manuscripts rather than the number of differences. That does, though, leave us with some pickles to punk. So, um, small-scale differences in the original languages, right? Minor variation occurs frequently if we've got two different manuscripts and we're looking at them together, right? For example, in Mark 1, verse 29, the NIV begins with, as soon as they left the synagogue. But the ESV has he instead of they, right? Uh, and the, the New Living Translation actually says, instead of he, says Jesus, right? As soon as Jesus left the synagogue. So other translations will show greater variety on how to phrase the verb in question, leave, departed, came to go away, or, or different things like that. But they they come down to some see it as singular and some see it as plural. In English, that seems like a big difference. And so some of you are frowning at me uh, as I describe that. But the reason that they have this disagreement is that some manuscripts have a plural verb, eilfon, and some manuscripts have a singular verb, eilfon. And if you hear it, it comes down to a single vowel in an unaccented syllable, a short O or a short E. And they even look alike in some handwriting, right? So the difference comes down to the single vowel in an unaccented syllable. And by the way, if you look at the paragraph, it makes absolutely no difference even to the sentence. How do we understand the sentence? Because Jesus is traveling with his disciples as they go from one place to another. So we're not left with a different picture of who's in motion and where they're going if we go with after he or after they. So that's an example of small-scale differences that we'll find between one manuscript and another. There are some more interesting ones. Uh, sometimes variant readings arise from larger issues than just changing and spelling. And the the one here at the end of First Samuel 9 is a curious example. It's in verse 25. The New American Standard has... When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And if you've got the New American Standard, you're looking at it, Samuel's in italics. Because the word Samuel doesn't occur in the Hebrew text, but they've they've put it there um, to help clarify what's going on. They put it in italics to signal to you that this word is missing, right? That's one of the things that the preface would tell you if you read the preface to the New American Standard. They... They use italics not to emphasize, but actually to de-emphasize. They'll, they'll add words for clarity that, that aren't part of the original language. The ESV, though, it has, when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Right? What's going on? The second half of the verse is completely different, and it's longer. Right? The reason is there's a difference between what's, what's recorded in the Hebrew text and what's recorded in the ancient translation of the Hebrew text into Greek. Right? The Septuagint has a different reading, and the ESV is following the Septuagint. Uh, what the Hebrew text says is a little odd, but you can make sense of it. And so that's what the New American Standard has done. Uh, but the Septuagint is longer um and it it looks like the whoever the greek translator was was reading a hebrew text that was just a little bit different um so that it, the hebrew text that they were reading appears to have had the verb for stretched out uh instead of he spoke vadaber it sounds really different but visually you've got two letters rearranged and then one letter that looks very visually similar. So they sound a little similar, and they look very, very similar. And then again, the text that the Greek translator seems to have been reading looks like it also has the verb for lie down, shakav, which looks and sounds a whole lot like the first verb in the next verse, they got up early, shakam. Just the last letter is different. So it's almost as though something happened in the transmission of the Hebrew text, where because of similar verbs at the end of the verse, the beginning of the next one, somebody's eyes skipped over and left two verbs out. And it looks like the Septuagint was translated before that happened. And the traditional Hebrew text that we have was copied after that happened. And so our English translators in trying to make sense of the history of the transmission of Samuel, some of them look at it and they scratch their head and they say, oh, we think that the Greek translation actually preserves a better witness to what the Hebrews said when it was first given by God. And others have said, no, we're going to stick with the Hebrew text, even if it's a little weird. We're going to stick with that. We like the Septuagint. We're glad you guys like the Septuagint, but we're going to leave it alone. And so these English translations have made different choices about the the weight they give to one manuscript versus another. Again, we still get the same overall picture of what is going on, right? They come down from the mountain um, or from the, the cultic site on top of the hill. Um, Saul sleeps on the roof the next morning. He and Samuel talk, and the difference comes down to did somebody prepare a bed for Saul or not? Obviously, somebody did, but does the text mention it or not? And the conversation that Samuel has with Saul the next morning is that the first or second conversation, right? That's all that difference amounts to. So minor differences, some more interesting differences, and then we do have some real head scratchers in the original languages. If you haven't heard of these before, some of these may be a little unsettling. So bear with me right? Uh, variant spelling, homophones, I skipping over similar words. That is the majority of variant readings. Things that come up as we're reading the Bible and it says, some manuscripts say, or your translation says one thing and my translation says another. We have ways and means right, of figuring out what to do with those kinds of things. But strange things happen with the copying of texts, right? If you sit down and copy a text from another text and then somebody comes and copies yours and somebody else comes and copies that one, somebody else comes and copies that one, usually if something weird pops up, we can figure out what's going on, but sometimes just really weird things happen, especially if somebody gets a phone call or knocks over their coffee in the middle of that process, right? There are two well-known cases from the New Testament um, that exemplify these these head scratchers that we're left with: uh, the adulterous woman passage that I mentioned in John, and then the ending of Mark. So, in John seven fifty three through eight eleven, we have an example of an entire narrative episode that some early manuscripts just skip over. They go directly from John seven fifty two to John eight twelve. They didn't have the numbering, so they didn't know they left something out, right? Um, With no interruption, right? I don't know of any modern English Bible that omits that, but almost every modern English Bible will put that episode in John in brackets, and they'll have some kind of note about this passage. Because it's not just that it's missing from some of the earliest manuscripts we have of John. It's also that some of the manuscripts that do have it don't agree about where it goes. Most have it here. Some put it at the end of John. There's at least one one manuscript that has it in Luke instead of John. So that's a bit of a head-scratcher. What do we do with that? The ending of Mark is even more complex. So, most of our printed Bibles end at Mark 16, verse 20, but they also enclose everything after verse 8 in brackets for the same reason. There are several early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark where chapter 16, verse 8, is the last verse. And then the next Gospel comes immediately after it. Um, But it's not that simple because there's a long ending that goes all the way to verse 20. There's a short ending that stops at verse 8. There's also a medium ending. Some manuscripts go to verse 12, and that's where they end the Gospel of Mark. They don't go any further than that. So, head scratcher. I see some of you are comparing your Bibles. You're like, mine has brackets. Why isn't yours? So, when... When you think about the Septuagint, so this this ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, we get even more things that leave us wondering what's going on. Uh, The story of David and Goliath, if we're reading the Septuagint, it doesn't read like a translation. It reads like a different telling of the same story. Uh, It's different in length. Some of the details are not quite the same. And if we look at the book of Jeremiah, we find the same book, but it looks like it's almost a different edition. Um, the material is in a slightly different order, and it's been trimmed down by about 10%. It's, it's overall about 10% shorter if we're reading Jeremiah in Greek. Not only that, after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we thought that was just a Greek thing. And then after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found Hebrew manuscripts of Jeremiah, that reflected what before we had only known in Greek. So there's a really weird thing going on, where it appears that during the time of the New Testament, there were two different editions of the book of Jeremiah in circulation. What's up with that? That's really, really weird. Okay, so what do we do with this kind of variety and complexity? Right, fire the pastor and run him out of town for telling us, That it's there, right? The discipline of examining and sorting through and discussing and clarifying these sorts of variants is what we call textual criticism, right? It's where we're making a judgment about the text, not its worth, not whether we're gonna obey it or something like that, but just looking at this manuscript versus that one trying to figure out what's going on and describe it and have a process for reckoning with the fact that this manuscript spells Jesus with a capital J and that one doesn't, right? Or this one has uh, Joachim and this one has Jehoiakin, right? It gives the longer version of his name up to and including things like multiple literary editions of Jeremiah. So textual critics we will examine manuscripts in minute detail, try and gather all the variant readings that they can find. They'll try and learn about the people who've copied the manuscripts. Sometimes they include notes in the manuscript that they've copied, like this was copied by so-and-so at such-and-such a place, and by the way, my brother's ugly, right? Really, they'll include things like that. It's really funny. Um, They'll try and describe the history of the transmission of the text. Uh, and at times, they'll also try and recover a more original reading, try and get back to the the older reading between possible readings, or at least try and explain how different variants may have happened, how they come about. And in this way, the work that has to be done with this is is actually not all that different from English scholars studying Shakespeare i have to reckon with the fact that even from very very early in the history of the printing of editions of shakespeare there are places where this printer and this printer don't agree with the details of the wording of macbeth in such and such a scene right and so this process is not unique to studying the bible it actually happens with with any kind of text that's then Transmit so. So one of the first things that that text criticism involves is cataloging and classifying variant readings, right? Um, compiling all the sorts of variations that we find in manuscripts, and then trying to come up with a way of classifying them according to kind. Uh, the process of combining, uh, sorry, compiling variant readings is often called collating as a technical term that you may hear. That just means collecting all the different readings and then trying to present them in a way that you can make sense of. Uh, And the classification for variant readings, especially the the smaller scale variants, is usually done on the basis of kinds of errors that commonly occur and the copying of texts. Error is a word that makes us feel really weird about this conversation. But think about when you're writing something down as someone's telling you something and you miss parts of what they say. That's something that happens in writing something down. Think about when you're copying something out for your notes from a book that you read and you, you leave out a line, right? Uh, or your wife tells you something and you hear something different. And so you come home from the grocery store with the wrong thing, even though it's on your list, right? It was wrong on your list, right? These are the kinds of things that happen. So so errors of the eye, for instance. These are things that happen when visually similar letters are confused, things that look the same. Uh, Or there are things that happen when we skip from one place in the text to another. Right? Usually that's skipping forward. The same word occurs twice in the line. And so we copy up to the first occurrence, write it down, go back up to where it it occurs next and copy from there. We leave out what's in between. That can happen in reverse, too, though. We can be copying along and then go back up a line and copy something down twice. So those are errors of the eye. Errors of the ear happen when you write down something that sounds like what you were copying. It may be because someone's dictating it to you as you're writing it down. Uh, it may be because you're saying it out loud as you're writing it down. Right? And you, just, you write down the wrong thing, like write and write right we do that all the time uh, if you write texts or you write emails you know how that happens you've probably done it multiple times today i know i did errors of the mind that sounds like we're saying unkind things about people it's not it happens when you inadvertently substitute the wording of a parallel passage right maybe you're copying out mark and you know this parable better from luke and so you accidentally substitute some of luke's wording as you're copying out Mark, right? Um, right. We misquote movies this way, right? We know what the person says in the scene, but then other people misquote it, and we hear them misquote it more often than we actually watch the movie ourselves, and so we end up misquoting it too, right? It's that kind of thing. And then errors of judgment, and that, that sounds scary, but this is the kind of thing where maybe the, the previous person working on the text has left a note in the margin for us. And as we're doing the work, we think, Oh, that's, that's a note that's supposed to go in the text. Like they made a mistake and I need to put it in. Or you're, you're copying the text and you feel like somebody's made a mistake. And so you correct it, That actually it turns out it, it wasn't a mistake. You've introduced something by, by doing that. So. Those are the, the usual ways that we classify kinds of is according to the kinds of errors that they line up with. So aside from trying to collect and classify different readings, the next thing that happens in textual criticism is explaining and resolving variant readings, right? Where'd they come from and how do we make sense of it? How do we get back behind it to what the text was? So when we've collated it, when we have this understanding of categories of variance, um, people doing textual criticism will follow a rule-bound process to make sense of the variety of readings that you might see. We're still left with head scratchers, for sure. But an overwhelming proportion of variants can be resolved by employing a few rules of thumb you probably like to know what they are. So, here we go. I've, I've saved you from the fancy Latin. These things all have fancy Latin names. I'm not giving you the fancy Latin names. If you want to know the fancy Latin names, I'll tell you. Uh, but the first one is the shorter reading is to be preferred. As people copy texts, it's much, it's much more common to add material than it is to leave it out. Maybe you feel like an explanation is needed, or that something is missing, or maybe you add a synonym in parentheses to help people understand what's meant, and then the next person copies it in. Because of this, when we're faced with longer and shorter variants, we give greater weight to the shorter one. And that's an important point, is um, when we're doing this work, manuscripts are weighed, not counted. Right. No, like we don't put them in the scale, right? But we consider the kinds of variants and what may have caused them. And that's more important in figuring things out than how many copies we have that have this reading versus that reading. Cause it could have been a mistake that happened at one point along the way. And we have a couple of manuscripts that preserve what should be there and then hundreds of manuscripts that were copied from one that preserved the mistake, right? So we don't count manuscripts when we're trying to resolve this. Instead, we we think about the readings and the evidence and making sense of what's there. So first, the shorter reading is to be preferred. Second rule of thumb is the more obscure reading is to be preferred. As people copy texts, again, the general tendency is to smooth out difficulties, sometimes on purpose. And sometimes entirely unconsciously, usually, as we're copying things, we will make sense of something that doesn't make sense, and we'll write down what makes sense instead of what's there. And so because of this, um, when we're faced with a clear reading and a less clear reading, we'll usually give more weight to the more difficult reading, as more likely to have caused the clearer reading than the other way around, right? And that, right, if we apply either one of those rules rigidly, it can create some really, really interesting results. Um, and at times they'll conflict with one another, right? Like you're 95% sure that somebody's eye skipped a line and so they left this out. But by golly, the shorter readings to be preferred, right? So you, you can't just apply those rules without paying attention, right? And so there's a third overarching rule that people use when they're trying to resolve variant readings. and It is to answer the question, which variant best explains the presence of the others? How can you explain how we got what we have, right? These rules of thumb will not answer every question that will pop up as we're reading the Bible, as we're reading it in different manuscripts and noticing differences between them, or as we're reading in in English versions. But they do go a long way toward providing a path forward. So, an embarrassment of riches. Uh, Discussing textual criticism and the large volume of variant readings can be overwhelming and unsettling. Like this discussion, right? Especially when people throw out words like copyist errors, right? Among other things. But we have nothing to gain. We have nothing to gain by keeping this information hidden instead of bringing it out into the light of day and talking about it, right? This is just a feature of what we have as we look at the thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible that have come down to us. I think a better way to think about it comes from a phrase Bruce Metzger used. He called the, the large volume of manuscripts we have, and as well as the problem it gives rise to, an embarrassment of riches. Because we're not talking about tens. We're not talking about hundreds. We're talking about several thousands of manuscripts to look at, to read, to consider, to compare, with one another and the sheer volume it goes all the way from little pieces of a verse that we can identify all the way up to complete copies of the Bible. Some of them thousands of years old. Um, It bears witness to God's providential preservation of his word. God has seen fit to preserve his word for his people. And for that matter, to preserve it in its original languages so that if we have a question of interpretation, we can go back to the original languages to try and figure it out, right? This embarrassment of riches also speaks to us of the way previous generations have treasured God's word and poured out their lives and their blood so that we can have access to it. Right, so that you and I could have seven different translations on our shelf and 45 on our phone and still not read the Bible this week. Right. So another phrase to think about is the, is the due use of ordinary. Meaning. It's so easy to take for granted what we have. And I'm not picking on you guys. Maybe that hit home for you. It hit home for me. I mentioned this about something else on Sunday. Really glad that there's not a mirror in here. I can't see my face. When I throw out things like that. But the due use of ordinary means, right? God's preservation of his word has not taken the form that most of us would prefer it did. It'd be a lot easier if the abundance of copies that we had were all in complete agreement with one another. Right? That'd make everybody's life a whole lot easier. Of course, if that is what we had, people would cry foul and they'd say, there's a conspiracy. Because there's no way that happens. Instead, the manner of God's preservation of his word requires that we use what the Westminster Confession calls a due use of ordinary means. If we were to examine the Bible in its original languages and work to resolve variant readings where they're found, we have to use all of the tools that God has placed at our disposal to do so. And he has. He's, he's given us tools to do that. And that leads to a, humble, a, a call for humble and focused attention. Right? The very existence of this embarrassment of riches, together with the development of tools to study and work with it, issues in another call. The Bible is a book that always rewards a careful rereading and prayerful study. So the problem of textual criticism is something that invites rather than threatens. It's not a problem. It's a challenge to be taken up. Differences between versions that come to the surface in the course of reading the Bible together remind us remind us of that call for a humble and focused attention. There's often more here than meets the eye or the ear, as the case may be. And it's always, always, always worth chasing down. And by a due use of ordinary means, right, a patient study, a willingness to learn, and prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit as we read, we can grow in grace and understanding as we chase those things down. So, so there you go, textual criticism. Yes, ma'am. Are there any textual criticisms that you handle that
1: have made a difference theologically, like, even between denominations or anything? Is there any, are there any that make any theological
0: difference? That's an excellent question. Um, Two things to think about in response to that, right? One is that, no doctrine of the church, broadly speaking, is established on a single text alone. If it is, you should run. Think of something like baptism for the dead, right? If somebody's arguing for baptism for the dead, run. That comes from one passage that nobody understands, right? We don't build a doctrine on a single passage. Because of that, right, if that was not the case, then yes there would be places where variants leave us unsure about something, but because that's not the case, it may impact whether this verse that we're looking at has to do with what we thought it did, but it doesn't affect any of our theological understanding. So, that's a good question, yeah.
1: I'm just thinking about how this conversation would go with a 30-year-old named Peter who was a fisherman? Who might have been marginally involved in the synagogue and the reading of scripture in the synagogue? I'm thinking about how did he get his head around this? I mean, I'm thinking, holy smokes! Well, in a more modern times, would uh, be Martin Luther Yeah. exposing uh, a conspiracy. Yeah. Of the church and and they were, and their true intent was to guard the scriptures so that this wouldn't happen mm-hmm. and and you wouldn't have all these interpretations and all this different things and so forth. Now they abuse that privilege too, according to church history. But uh, you know, even now, I think some of it is trying to communicate even in America to a group of people who have far below a 6th grade reading so. Well, and I'm thinking about the literacy abilities, yeah. you know, in the first century and up to the printing of the Gutenberg Bible, for example, pick your mark in history, and I'm thinking about all the stained glass of these ancient churches that were early missional attempts if that's a word uh to to tell script to communicate scripture because nobody could read language and so I mean I'm just wondering when this textual criticism really came on the scene, if you will. I mean, was it the nineteenth century, the seventeenth century?
0: Oh no. No. Much, 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 much earlier. Uh to give you an example, um, the the famous library of Alexandria wasn't just a library. No, no. not Louisiana, in Egypt, right? It wasn't just a library. It was a center of learning. And one of the things that they did at that library was collate manuscripts, right? They weren't interested in the Bible um, because they weren't Christians or Jews. They were Greeks, right? Or part of the Greco-Roman world. But they were studying Homer they were studying aristotle and plato right and they found this kind of thing that you've got a manuscript of plato's dialogues over here you've got a manuscript over here and they've got differences between them and so we've got to work out or or start working out a way for recognizing it talking about it recording it noting it down because part of our job is Copying the text so that we can continue to have this thing to read in the future, right? Because they're writing materials. It depends where you are geographically and the kind of climate you're in. But most of the writing materials are going to last about a generation. So if you're not continually copying these books, you're going to lose them. The flip side of that is if you're continually copying these books, there's all sorts of opportunities for things to happen, and they do. Right? Um, there's a difference between Old Testament and New in this regard, in that um, scribes copying the Old Testament in Hebrew were very, very, very careful. And they developed a system to try and catch errors before they stuck where they would count the number of words and the number of letters when they came to the end of copying out a book. And they would also know the exact middle verse and the exact middle word. And so legend has it, you'd write out your copy, you'd check the statistics, somebody else would check the statistics too. And if there was a mistake with the statistics, such that they found a mistake in the scroll you were copying, you had 24 to 48 hours to catch it and fix it, or it would get burned. And all that time you spent copying that out, this goes in the in the burn pile. Now, how often that actually happened versus they just said that's what they did—that's a different question. But you can pick up a Hebrew Bible today, and and you can see because this is based on a, a manuscript from 1000 A.D. You can, you can come to the end of a, of a book of the Old Testament and there's all these extra letters that are little and that's them making their notes about how many letters there are, how many words there are, um, how many verses there are and what the middle verse and middle word are. Right? They don't always match the text that they're copying. So um, the chapter and verse divisions as we know them are from medieval times. You start to have some sense breaks uh, between sentences and paragraphs that show up in manuscripts earlier than that, some going back quite a long ways, but they're not standardized uh, in the form that we know them until the medieval time. Until uh, when? Until the Middle Ages. Yes, sir. I used to know the name of the fellow who did it, and, I, and that's gone. I don't remember that. Other ways of referring to the text, uh, were developed much earlier. So late fourth century, uh, you have the Eusebian canons. So Eusebius had a way of dividing up the New Testament, or at least the Gospels, into sections. And I think they related to, to lectionary readings. So that you'd read this passage for this Sunday, you'd read the next passage for the next Sunday and, and things like that. We are recording this, so you can, you can blast this on Facebook and talk about your evil pastor who talked about textual criticism. We don't talk about this enough, right? And I know I could talk about this forever, and some of you wish we had not talked about it at all. But but as we're reading First Samuel, this has come up repeatedly, right? It's come up as we've talked about your Bible says, my Bible says. It comes up in the footnotes when it talks about different manuscripts. It comes up when we have verses that you know yours is one sentence long and mine's three sentences long. So we've we've got to talk about this. Uh, And when we don't talk about this, other people who don't love Jesus will and do and have. And there's a fellow who has spent his lifetime studying the New Testament and working with New Testament textual criticism, Studying under men who gave their careers to this and loved Jesus, and something happened to him and he doesn't. And he prays on, he will tell you in the preface to some of his books, that he prays on evangelical college freshmen who don't know this and show up in his classes and he gets to be the one to tell them for the first time hey, guess what? There are 30,000 different variations in the New Testament. How can you believe that anything in there is anything Jesus ever said? If we don't talk about this, other people will. And if they're the first one to break the story, then we're already primed to believe them and to be suspicious of the people who didn't tell us this was here. And this gets really fun. I know you guys don't believe me, but as you sit down and you start to look at handwritten manuscripts and you try to make sense of this smudge on the page and you try and make sense of their B's and P's always looking the same, even though they're supposed to be different letters and other things like that, one of the things that you gain as you're scratching your head, leery-eyed looking at your computer image, right? Thankful that you get to look at it on the computer instead of. In paper in a dark room with a burning candle, is is the human involvement in this process? Because sometimes it's really easy to feel divorced from the people God used to make sure we had access to the Bible, and it's harder to do that when you actually can can look at the manuscripts yourselves. Yes, ma'am. I'm old, and I
1: probably won't make any sense. But I was taught that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And all this other whatever is just whatever. comes out of I mean, I, 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 I've been reading my Bible all my life. Grandpa was a preacher. My daddy was a deacon. I went to Sunday school just like most of y'all did. And this just doesn't make any sense I'm sorry. No. no, no. I, I, I just I don't see. It just seems like you're throwing down God's word. It's, and it's
0: inspired by the inspired word of God. It absolutely is. Thank you for raising that, because that brings a very, very important question to the fore that, that we need to talk about, right? If we if we go back to the beginning of our study, you may remember I, I talked about my presuppositions. Where am I coming from? How do I read the text? What do I believe about the Bible? And one of the things I read to you from the Westminster Confession there um, asserted that everything that you need to know for salvation is so clearly expounded in one passage or another that anybody. With or without an education, if they apply themselves to reading the Bible, can know all that they need to know in order to know the Lord Jesus and be saved. That is absolutely true. And that is not affected by this at all. And I want that to be absolutely clear. So thank you for raising that. Yes, sir? And our
1: question and all this. At least she's not going to have to be like William Tyndall. Y'all familiar with William Tyndall? Mm-hmm. I wasn't so you told me to read the preface of the book. So I opened up.
0: And just for your information, William Tyndall got burned at the stake. He did. And at one point, he told a man of the church who was trying to keep the Bible from the English people that I will make the man that drives the plow know more of Scripture than you. The other side that that comes up with you raising that question, right, is if I want to be saved, I can apply myself to reading the Bible and I can come to know everything I need to know for that without knowing the ins and outs of textual criticism, without knowing the what's going on when it says some manuscripts say. Right? Without knowing the all the rest. But God gave us all the rest. Right? God gave us all the rest. You could go to Thanksgiving dinner and you could eat turkey. And you could say, I had turkey at Thanksgiving. You'd probably disappoint your grandmother and your aunt and your mom and the people who prepared so much beside the turkey because there's so much more to Thanksgiving dinner than just the bird. in the same way. And there's, there's a richness there. There's a delight there. There's something that we miss. We had the turkey. We celebrated Thanksgiving and that's a wonderful and a beautiful thing. But there's a richness and a depth that we missed if we were satisfied with eating some turkey. And we didn't have the pecan pie. And, and we didn't have the, the sweet potatoes. I'm not going to have the sweet potatoes. I don't like sweet potatoes. I'm okay with missing the sweet potatoes. And some of you guys think that textual criticism is the sweet potatoes. And that's okay. But, But there's so much more here. But as we get into the more, what we find is that what we want to be easy is sometimes more complex than we thought it was. Sometimes there are more layers. There are more things to consider. And so what I hope that you come away with this evening is a knowledge that there's more going on. And that we can't just pick our favorite translation and ignore the places where other translations disagree. There's something worth ferreting out there. But I hope also that, especially if you're hearing this from for the first time, you hear it from someone who loves Jesus, who's going to tell you that for all the differences that you may find as you get into the details, this text is to be trusted and to be believed and to be read and to be explored. So that when someone who doesn't love Jesus comes along and says, hey, you know, there's lots of variants, you can say, yeah, I know. Why don't we look at them together? Let's read the text, right? Instead of being like, oh, my gosh, no one's ever told me. What else have they not told me? Which happens to so many who don't hear this. Yes, sir. We spent nine years in Utah amongst the Mormons.
1: Mm-hmm. And over the course of those nine years, I received six books from Mormon. And they had witnessed to me and witnessed to me and witnessed to, witness to me. And in their mind, I was going to hell because I didn't believe what they believed.
0: You brought up Mormons, and that's a good way to, to reflect on this from a completely different angle. Right? If, if you read about what supposedly happened, right, is Joseph Smith was given access to these golden plates, which he translated. And then those plates were immediately taken up, which means our only access to what is supposed to be such a, a deeply important religious text is through his translation. What we have with the Old and New Testament is complicated. It's messy. It doesn't come to us the way we wish it had. But what we have instead is very ready access do copies and copies and copies and copies, that we can read, that we can compare, that we can discuss, that we can sit around the table and scratch our head about. And that's a very, as as much as talking about the details of that can be unsettling, that's a much more welcome position to be in, I think.
1: Don't you think,
0: don't you think it boils down
1: to faith? I mean, I can't prove what's in this book. It's hard for me to understand how a whale could swallow a man spit him up, and he's still alive. But you know what? If that's God's word and he says it's true, I'm pretty stupid. I mean, I'm not very smart. But I know if I turn on that switch, that lights will probably come on and best Milk or energy's got a problem. And I can't I can't understand it. And I don't understand all this stuff up here with all these buttons. But somebody does. Somebody knows it works.
0: So this is not where we're going from here. I love textual criticism. I like working with the manuscripts. I like finding puzzles and trying to find the answer to them. But I want to read Samuel with you all. But as we've been reading Samuel, things keep coming up. So I did want to take an evening to stop and talk about what is this? What's going on? And how do we navigate something that's hard? So that's it. We're going back into first in, right? So chapter 10 is next week. But as we look at it, and this is one of the reasons I chose to talk about this here is because we just encountered something that made a couple of you go, what's going on in chapter nine, verse 25? And it's going to happen again in chapter 10, verse one, right? Where some of us are going to have a two sentence verse and some of us are going to have a four or five sentence verse. So I wanted us to have a framework for understanding what's going on? Why is your translation different than mine? And why is that something to wonder about, but not something to worry about? But we're not going to keep going with textual criticism, right? We're not going to turn this into a graduate seminar. We're going to go back to 1 Samuel and keep going from there. Why don't I pray for us? Lord, we thank you that you have given us men and women who have devoted themselves to studying difficult things and to giving us the fruit of their labor that you have given us men and women who have have poured out their lives devoted themselves to and even been martyred for the copying and the preserving and the translating of scripture so that we who stand at this end of that great cloud of witnesses might benefit from their labors, might read your word and understand it and know Christ through it. Father, we pray that you would give us courage to face the, the challenging and the complex aspects of your word, when they when they don't match our expectations. We pray that you would grow us in grace as well as understanding that the, the Bible would never become to us a mere object of curiosity. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.